welcome back everyone. Um, I hope you, if you checked out the first episode, enjoyed that. Um, and thanks for tuning in and thanks for tuning in again now. Um, might as well say now, uh, why not subscribe wherever you're watching this? Um, so if you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the subscribe button to our channel. Um, if you want to follow us on Facebook and make sure you don't miss out that way, um, you can find us uh, Stormy Water Sessions there. Or you can go to stormywaters.org, that's stormywaters.org, um, and uh, you'll find uh, all sorts of ways to, to follow us and um, keep uh, abreast of what we're doing um, there. Uh, not least, you could sign up to our mailing list as well. So today we thought, um, in the light of the fact that uh, the American elections went on last week, um, that we would... Uh, do something called you, me, and the government, or oh, that's what we're calling it anyway. Um, obviously, we're not Americans, um, but the American elections um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, they're seen all over the world. Um, so, and we're not just going to be talking about, in fact, we're going to be talking very little um, about American politics. Um, really, what we're, we're just using that as, as something to to get us going because uh, there's certain bits of it that have been in the news and particularly um, bits that um, you might be watching and thinking, well, hang on, you know, this, this guy's saying that Trump is God's candidate or that America is a Christian nation or needs to be a Christian nation again. Um, and you might have seen the videos of uh, a woman called Paula White um, who was um, essentially um, praying for a Trump victory um, even when it appeared that Trump had lost and another guy called Kenneth Copeland um, who in one of his church services was um, laughing um, at Joe Biden encouraging his uh, congregation to laugh at Joe Biden um, and that might have looked um, especially strange to a non-American or, or British audience who might have been wondering what you know what what's that all about um, is, is there such a thing as um, a Christian nation? Is there such a thing as God's perfect candidate? Did God want Trump or Biden to win? Um, and some people, um, people that Dad and I know um, even, uh, have said, you know, I can't understand why these so-called Christians are voting for Trump. Um, but I think we, we, we don't want to get too bogged down in the American side of things. You know, we're not, we're not Americans. Um, so we're also going to look more broadly at, um, you know, what what should um, Christian involvement in in politics be? Um, should we just sit back and watch? Because um, you know we we believe in um, you know something beyond this. Um, should we be getting involved? Should we be becoming politicians ourselves? Um, what should we be doing? Um, so. I think uh, right now um, we're, I'm just gonna start asking my dad some questions, basically. Um, I'll let him introduce himself first and then we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, if this is your first time, um, I am a Christian writer uh, and author. I've edited uh, some magazines that people in the UK may be aware of or helped publish, a uh, youth work magazine, uh, a magazine called Christianity, it's called Christianity Now and uh, Renewal. I'm also a local church pastor here in Eastbourne um, and uh, I've helped a couple of people 
uh, write books on prayer. So uh, I'm coming to this um, from somebody who's tried to keep himself well informed about how the church and the state and the individual Christian uh, and the churches uh, relate uh, to government uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. So um, I hope that that background uh, will keep me informed uh, and contribute to this discussion. So what do you think are our responsibilities um, as Christians or, or people that are, are kind of observing this and thinking, you know, what, what, what does God want me to do about this? Um, should I be, um, you know, getting involved in uh, campaigning um, for a politician in particular? Or should I be campaigning for a particular cause? Or um, should I just be, um, uh, you know, making sure that my life is okay and my internal life is is looking good? And should I not be worried about, you know, uh, whether there's homeless people on the street outside me? What do you reckon? I think when you look back at British history, uh, let's use British history as a kind of a lens to look at this through. Um, uh, particularly uh, in the sort of the 1600s, uh, there was a lot of conflict between various groups of people who wanted to use the power of the state, the authority of the king, uh, or the authority of parliament, uh, to uh, dictate to other people about what their religious and life choices uh, might be. Uh, and uh, the uh, those who were in some way a state church were quite keen to stop anybody else worshipping in a church that wasn't a state church. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got a lot more to say on that, but just where I live, um, which is a fairly rural um, place, it's interesting when I go for a walk and um, suddenly as soon as you get out what would, what would be considered to be the boundaries of, of this parish, um, suddenly there's these different looking churches <laughs> yeah. um, a few of them in the in the town now, but suddenly these these very sort of square non-conformist um, churches. Yeah, the uh, the yeah the spiritual geography of our towns and cities. But one of the things that's interesting, once you get to the 18th century, um, uh, particularly towards the sort of 1860s onwards, but even before then, is that. Uh, Christians of all different stripes, Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, and so on, are beginning to engage with the civic sphere uh, in a new and different way. So, for instance, um, uh, the school system and widespread uh, literacy uh, came out of Christians taking action and then the state having to join in and try and understand what was happening and uh, and, and in some cases supply their own schools so that one religious group didn't become dominant. Uh, education uh, came out of that. A lot of stuff to do with uh, children working in the factories and factory conditions came about because of coalitions of interest between Christians, labour groups, uh, and other people who were concerned for the welfare of everyday people. Um, there was another concern that uh, young people didn't have a lot to do uh, and needed further education. And uh, Christians such as uh, the Quentin Hogg, the grandfather or great-grandfather of the well-known Tory politician of 30-odd uh, years ago, helped establish what is now uh, universities, but were then 
polytechnics. Um, and that arose out of his interest in further education. So sometimes Christians have involved themselves in the civic sphere by doing something that then becomes uh, the norm. And uh, people sometimes say that Christians uh, shouldn't be involved in politics with a capital P, i.e. I advocate for such and such a party, but they should be involved. Uh, life is inextricably political um, and the choices we make will have a political impact. You don't have to look far uh, within the Labour Party's roots to discover Methodism uh, and, and other groups. You don't have to look far within the Liberal Democrats' roots to discover uh, congregational uh, churches. And you don't have to look far within the Conservative Party roots to discover a great deal of uh, Anglic Anglicanism. So Christians having with politics, not always as we are the church, we wish to dominate, but definitely as we have some concerns, do other people share those concerns? And uh, the, getting the children out of the factories, the abolition of slavery, and many other of the socially beneficial innovations uh, have come from church activism in the public sphere on behalf of uh, the Congregational Church in the late 1800s published a book called The Bitter Cry of Outcast London. Um, and along with the Salvation Army, they were the ones that were speaking loudly uh, in the cities and the primitive Methodists in the rural areas about the conditions of the ordinary working people. So we are going to have a civic engagement, whether we like it or not. The challenge is, what model are we bringing to the table? And that's where it can get really controversial. And that's, that sort of brings us to now, although, you know, as we've established, it's, it's not a new thing. And, and actually, I'm reading a book at the moment by the guy that was the Archbishop of, well, I think Canterbury, was it, in, in the 40s and probably before and after that. I think he was known as the, the People's Archbishop or something. And he was almost everything that he wrote there you think he could have written this last year. You know, people were telling him not to get involved in politics in 1941 and 1942. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you know, we are we are in right now, and that's what we're observing at the moment. So, yeah. you know, stuff like, um, and, you know, this, this exists in a, a British context as well. You would have had people last year who would say, I am voting for Boris Johnson because the other guy, he wants to get rid of religious freedom or, you know, he's a communist or whatever. And then you'd have people on the other side who'd say, well, I'm voting for Jeremy Corbyn because he's going to sort this out and sort that out. And that's what it says in, you know, this bit. And this is my understanding of, um, you know, um, how society should look like. And, and therefore, um, you know, I'm voting for this guy. And, are either of them right? Are they a bit right? Both a bit right? Both a bit wrong? Uh, I think politics is always going to be an imperfect vehicle for uh, uh, obtaining our goal. Um, and uh, part of the challenge that we have is that, that we can come and look at this in, in three or four different ways. And so one group says that we should always be uh, the raggedy voice at the edge saying this is wrong and here are some other ways of doing it. Other groups strongly believe, and this deeply influences uh, a certain kind of American politics, that um, 
we should be deeply uh, involved and we should run the country and we should seek to have it run according to Christian principle. Um, and that should be imposed. Um, and it, the technical term is theocratic. Um, the problem with theocratic uh, rule is it doesn't have a very good history. Um, there is often situations in contemporary politics and historical politics where one group or another has felt oppressed and risen up. Um, amongst the nuances of it all, uh, there is an idea called confessional pluralism. And confessional pluralism says that Christianity or indeed any other religion uh, has a right to have a voice in a society. It should have a seat at the table and its voice should be listened to quite carefully, but the, the expectation of the Christians should be that they would be listened to, not that they're in charge. Mm. Uh, and uh, when we touch uh, in a couple of minutes on what the biblical pattern here might be, there is uh, a reason within our history where we are a little bit wary of being in charge. It often goes very wrong. So, yeah, let's move on to that, because uh, I, I think amongst the little bit of feedback we've had from our first episode is that we uh, might have dwelt too long on certain things. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, so I, I think um, perhaps that does bring us on to some of the biblical patterns. And one of the things I think you um, might want to talk about um, is, you know, does the Bible say we need government? Why do we need government? Can't can't we just get on with it? I think there's two uh, or three poles, so to speak, um, uh, in all of this. And, and pole one is, what is our responsibility when we live in a community, in a society, in a nation? Uh, what are we to think of those who lead? And the Bible seems to suggest uh, that any cultural society will need some form of leadership people who will uh, uphold um, a, a set of uh, laws that will help keep peace and equity and so on within uh, a culture. Uh, and that we are to uh, not kind of relentlessly agitate for their overthrow um, so unless, unless there's real corruption. So uh, I'll just read the first couple of verses of that so that's let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established the authorities that exist have been established by God consequently whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves well, that seems quite stark to me <laughs> it's sort of um could be interpreted as just saying, well, you know, whoever's in charge, you've just got to go along with it and, you know, tough luck, basically. Yeah, I think if you go back into uh, the, the Bible pattern, what you find is that initially uh, people were ruled by the patriarch of their extended family uh, or clan. Um, but, you know, that wasn't working out too well, too many disputes. So, but this is a whistle-stop tour of scripture, but uh, 
then judges were instituted who would mediate in some of these disputes um, and help bring clarity. But the people of Israel began to agitate for kings. Everybody else had kings. Why can't we have kings? Um, and uh, the Bible seems to actually infer that God was quite ambivalent about that. Um, it wasn't what he favoured. It was uh, not what he wanted. And it very quickly went wrong. Obviously, Saul, uh, the first one was, uh, you know, to use a common phrase, he was a bit of a grumpy old boy. A um, lot of uh, anger, a lot of throwing spears at people. Didn't work out well. David, good king in many ways. That could be the subject of a long discussion. Uh, some of it positive, some of it negative. Solomon, absolute nightmare. And the reason uh, that we particularly alight on Solomon is that uh, God had kind of warned them that he would uh, indulge in war and he would build this and he'd build that and, and that any, many of them would end up in slavery to fulfill his economic goals and they would be heavily taxed. And so Solomon didn't work out very well and very few of the kings worked out very well. So it's clear that the, there's always been a kind of, a trying to find a way that a society can be governed equitably. The Bible uses um, this metaphor of the shepherd quite a lot. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, and that is repeated several times uh, in the prophetic books. And it always comes back around again to, have you got a good shepherd or you've got a bad shepherd? And if the bad shepherd is not maintaining justice, looking after the poor, all of those kind of things. And so the Romans 13 thing alludes to a reality that there are those who are given responsibility within a society, however that comes about, um, and that they have a responsibility that goes with that authority and that we are to not... Uh, you know, at the moment, there's people uh, in America who are basically saying, I'm not going to wear a mask. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Um, and Romans 13 would say to them, uh, excuse me, just go with the flow. You know, uh, they, they must have a good reason for this. It's not going to do you that much harm. In fact, it might save your life. And so th there is a kind of, uh, let's just not be spitting at the government, just for the sake of it. So you sit alongside that, the, the, the one other thing to note about Romans 13, um, it's basically saying respect the authorities because God tells you to. However, most of the Romans would have thought that Caesar was the authority. So this text, while it's saying respect the authority, is subversive of the authority because it's saying the authority, your Roman, emperor authority is not the ultimate authority uh, in God's world. So, interesting little twist there. The other thing is we're recommended to pray for those. Uh, later in one of the epistles, we're recommended to pray for those in power, pray for the king, pray for those in authority. And it suggests a constructive approach to the need for some kind of government uh, to uh, help mediate uh, the affairs of men. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think we need to have some idea of what we think uh, local authority looks like. Different parts of the world, Switzerland, they've got 26 cantons in one nation, all got a degree of independence. The United States, actually the same. United Kingdom, four different locuses of power. So 
it might take all different kinds of shapes, but you know, somebody needs to do the public street lighting, clean the streets, you know. There are things that happen for all of our good and we should support that. Yeah. However, and your next question, I think will probably elicit the however. Well, yeah, I think uh, no, obviously there's certain communal things that need to be, I'm just looking at a street light out, out of my window there. Um, you know, there, there's certain things that we all use and therefore are common benefit. And, uh, but uh, I, I mean, I, I guess maybe you're expecting me to say, well, what if, what if the government is, you know, oppressing us or oppressing people that we, um, we should be sticking up for? And, you know, how long do we let things go on? So just letting things get from, from our point of view worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, because we're we're thinking, well, we've just got to, we've just got to pray about it or um, something like that. We've emphasised in this discussion thus far our responsibilities. Um, you know, to live as good citizens, to pray for those in power, uh, to model uh, certain ways of living. But then you come onto the challenge, which you see deeply uh, in the scriptures, but particularly in the prophetic books towards the end of the Old Testament, and in the life and ministry of Jesus, and even on into the life of Paul, where uh, they uh, would not close their mouths if injustice was being done. Uh, the book of uh, Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, says, let, um, uh, let justice roll down. The, there's this whole... Uh, emphasis on uh, loving mercy, acting justly, uh, throughout the prophetic books. We're commended to not sell the poor for a pair of sandals. Those who live lavish lifestyles and ignore the poor are condemned in the strongest possible terms. So acting responsibly and believing there needs to be government structure doesn't shut our mouths when something terrible is happening. Um, and I, I believe there is what is called a prophetic imperative. And we're not traitors or uh, in some way uh, subverting uh, what God desires uh, if we stick our hands up and say bad stuff is happening. Because our sticking our hands up and saying bad stuff is happening is what God desires. Um, John the Baptist, Jesus's forerunner, uh, was speaking about corruption uh, in the high levels of the Herodian uh, court. Jesus, in overturning the tables in the temple, uh, is speaking uh, to uh, corruption amongst the court authorities um, and what he perceived as uh, a corruption of the temple's use, uh, an oppression of the people, and all of those things. So, you know, it's, it's a bit hard for us in contemporary life to hold these two ideas together and say, we respectfully want to see the state succeed, the you know, or the governing authority succeed, but we will hold that governing authority to account. And one of the things I've discovered is that things are really one-dimensional. You know, you could deal with a group of uh, local government officers who were acting wonderfully in area X and badly in area Z, and you would want to say to them, 
affirm you about Area X, why on earth are you doing that in this other area or sphere of life? And so it's not, it's not easy to take that balanced stance because many people in our society and culture, they want to polarise. I mean, if, if we could just come in for a minute into the life of Jesus, um, what was the political leanings of the groups that opposed him? So uh, the uh, Pharisees, Pharisees opposed him because they had a nationalistic view of God uh, helping them deal with the idolatrous Romans if they were a pure nation. And Jesus kept doing things that they considered impure. And so it wasn't that they were thinking, oh, if he was more pure, then we would earn favour with God. It was, if he was more pure, we would earn favour with God and there would be a good outcome for our nation. And you hear this a lot in Christian circles. We are a Christian nation and God will favour us or judge us. Uh, when in fact, God's looking down and going, there's some Christian people in that nation and there's some Christian people in that nation and there's some Christian people in that nation. And the, the, biggest, the biggest communist nation in the world has more Christians uh, than any other country in, country in the world. So you could say, oh, God's judging China, they're communists. But actually, there's more Christians there than anywhere else. And uh, if we're talking per capita, then uh, then South Korea is the uh, the Christian nation and not America. Indeed. Think, isn't it? <laughs> indeed. And so, I mean, then and then it would be interesting if you came in on coronavirus and said, uh, so how does South Korea handle this? Oh, quite meticulously yeah. and much, 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 much lower rate than this other nation, which has said, oh, it's all the storm in the teapot. Well, it is here now. Oh, yeah, no, but we can't. Oh, everybody's exaggerating. This drug will work. And so whoever's in government and the choices they make are really important. And, uh, and then you come back to Jesus. You say the Pharisees were the nationalists. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple. They were the rich elite. And Jesus had a lot to say about them. A lot of his speech was politically subversive. The story tells of Lazarus and Dives is a direct attack on the negligent worldview of this group about poor people, where he says uh, uh, he welcomes uh, Lazarus to heaven and Dives is sent to judgment. And Dives says, send somebody to warn my brothers. And uh, Abraham says, well, actually, they've already got the first five books of the Bible, the law. That should be enough to warn them. Why are they ignoring it? So this is this is subversive speech that we're hearing. Jesus' uh, declar uh, encouragement in the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, uh, to be prayed at the end, uh, would have been very undermining of a Roman dominant Caesar divinity dialogue. And so Sadducees, the Pharisees, um, the Essenes, they were off in the desert. We, the, the original quietists, we're not going to deal with this. It's a waste of time. They're totally corrupt. We're going to go off and have a pure society over here. And so you can't look at Jesus' teaching outside of the, the, the civil attitudes of the people that were critiquing him. And one group was... First century um, Jewish life, basically. And, and so, so perspective, point of view, uh, interpretation, 
uh, of God's will. It all matters because Jesus cut through these five ways of looking at things. And his cutting through was often very hands-on. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to, uh, me and my disciples are going to give you some money, try and get you back on your feet. We're going to, there was no sort of, uh, oh, we'll just sit in a little debating chamber and, you know, see if we can work some stuff out here. They actively went out and were citizens of the kingdom of God. So um, just sort of bringing us back to, if not quite the present day, um, uh, just yet, although, you know, we've talked a bit about masks and sort of herd immunity types of conversations at the moment and some sort of well-publicised um, responses that we've seen from, from some people and that, that, uh, that would profess to be Christians. Um, but I, I think just um, yeah, we might want to talk about maybe at least one person in history who... Um, perhaps try to embody a lot of what we've been talking about, somebody like Martin Luther King, maybe, who was basically saying, look, I want this country to be better. I want it to live out the, the true meaning of its, yeah. <laughs> um, its creeds, basically. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, there was Luther King um, with his nonviolent protests, which was a highly significant thing. Um, there have been other people, even in more recent history, um, when the uh, Marcos regime was overthrown in uh, the Philippines. It was largely through non-violent mass protest. Uh, when the East German regime crumbled, uh, it was a very broad mix of people who brought that about, but the focus of it was premiers, and the one in Leipzig was the one that uh, is believed to have tipped the whole thing over um, and then literally the wall started coming down. So Christians who are willing to speak up in constructive ways uh, are changing and have changed all kinds of things. Um, we've talked about the examples from the 18th century um, and uh, the real tangible change that came about in people's lives uh, through uh, protection of children within the factories uh, and then a laser-like understanding of what was happening to the adults in the factories, let alone uh, the, the children. And so a, a lot of our engagement will either come by uh, modelling something in a local area or becoming an advocate within this uh, idea of confessional pluralism, that there are places where these things are talked about how society should be, how culture should be. And Christians and the faith communities are invited into those and can go in and give constructive input. And sometimes in concert with others, they will sway the needle uh, towards uh, change. And so between the modeling and the advocacy and the uh, desire for a just state rather than the complete abolition, of any structure of government, we can bring quite a constructive uh, set of answers uh, to the table. Um, but the thing that will kill us is a group on one hand saying, oh, don't bother with all of that, uh, which you do sometimes find in church, and another group that says... And they say that because 
well, you know, it's all, you know, we haven't got long left or, you know, essentially, you know, our, our kingdom is in heaven and yeah. not seeing the sort of kingdom of heaven on earth and maybe missing out on some of that and just thinking, okay, well, you know, we can't, we can't make a perfect society here. So sh we shouldn't even try at all. Yeah. And it's often based in a uh, uh, concentration on the soul and uh, an introverted approach to spirituality, which is about fine tuning your own sense of nearness to God. Um, and it, it's kind of close to the truth, but it veers off. So it, it's good if we uh, understand who God is, the desire that he has to relate to us as individuals, the desire that he has for us to, to give his love away to others, but to be the image of him in the world. But and that's another thing to consider when we think about our role in the world. We were originally, according to the book of Genesis, appointed as ambassadors to creation on behalf of God. And so there's always been this idea that we have a responsibility uh, and a purpose. Um, but alongside that, as, as culture became corrupted or broken, we also have a prophetic responsibility to say that cannot continue and to model something which is uh, different to that. Sometimes uh, when people are brought into an apocalyptic worldview, um, it becomes not so much, how can we bring Christian ethics to bear on the broad scope of our society as to how can we have power? Because if we have power, then we will be able to impose our faith. And then we'll be able to line everything up just how we think God wants it and then it'll be it'll all be sort of sorted <laughs> then yeah I mean one of the one of the I think it, there's a book that you and I have both read and quite like where it's the I think he, he describes it the author Greg Boyd this is a book called Myth of a Christian Nation um as um power and uh, power under and yeah. power over um or something yeah. along those lines and I think it's quite uh, important to note that the early church uh, for the first 500, 400, 500 years did not have the opportunity to impose its uh, worldview or morality on cultures and societies. Um, and it flourished and it grew and it did not need the instruments of uh, state power in order to uh, to grow and and so on and and, and it promoted a heart religion. Yeah, I, went, I was just, just going to say that um, you know the the power under thing um, is well actually people are um, believing because they believe and one of the things that that Boyd says in 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 that book Myth of a Christian Nation is. There's so many, and he's talking about America, but you know, there's probably 60% of people in Britain that say on the census form, I'm a Christian. But the, the problem with that is so many people think that they are a Christian because they live in a country that has historically been described as Christian, often because not always, but because it's white. And then so they think, oh well, you know, there's nothing, nothing I need to do, it's all it's all good. Um, you know, I, I don't need to understand this any more than I do. And if they realised, well, this is not a Christian nation, 
and actually a, a Christian nation in the way that we understand it can't can't exist then yeah. they might actually look and and try and understand it for themselves a little better yeah Jesus and the early church deeply undermined the idea of a geographically situated nation being uh, the ones who received favor from God uh, and brought to us the idea that groups of people who honored God received blessing from God. And so in every country in the world, there are groups of people who honor God uh, and the church is pan, pan international. It's everywhere. If yeah, go- I, I mean, that means me and my <laughs> my opinion coming out, I suppose, here. But, um, you know, it, uh, and this isn't sort of looking back at, at the Bible, it's just looking back at history. But nation states, as we understand them right now, have only existed in that way for you know, maybe 100, 115 years or something, 120 years. Um, yeah. So, you know, in that sense, it's uh, obviously there were countries before that and so on. Um, but, there were, you know, in terms of the, the sort of border enforcement and, and the way that um, they're, they're conceptualised now. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can talk a lot about America and sometimes that can try uh, be, be almost letting ourselves off the hook in Britain. And we think, oh yeah, you know, the empire, that was that was good and Christian, and we, you know, we civilized people and you know, some quite unchristian things. Um, we can think about empire um because it was our country that did it. Yeah, well, one of the reasons that English is speaking spoken so widely around the world is that um uh, you know it's air traffic control, all these kind of things. Um, it, it became an international language because of uh, empire building. But actually, the reality was that in a lot of the places where we built our empire, we did not have any interest in educating the people to speak a foreign language. We just wanted their rubber or their oil or their gas or whatever. And so the empire was always a contested arena because there were some people that was just all about the money. It was a form of legalized piracy. But then there was mission groups who were like, let's build dignity for these people. Let's teach them how to read and write. Let's, you know, introduce them to, to our religious concepts and, and all of those kind of things. Now, that's a very simplified view of colonial imperialism. But a lot of the places that got liberal democracies uh, around the world where the British Empire was, or some form of liberal democracy or something close to it are places where there was a high degree of literacy because of the influence of Christian mission. And that if you really, really started studying in the same way as if you study the 18th century and and find the primitive Methodists in the early Labour Party and the Congregationalists and the Liberal Democrats and so on, um, you may well find that a great deal of uh, the constructive uh, political stuff happening around the world uh, is rooted in um, the missionary activity in holding up ideals through literacy into an understanding of what uh, a good society might look like. Now, do you know, that is a big simplification, but it, it, um, it, 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 
very um, big question about whether, you know, more than a big question about whether, uh, you know, one country, any country should be seeking to dominate another people. Obviously, this is a, a, a discussion for another day, probably. So uh, let's let's sort of move back to um, just any any sort of closing um, remarks that you might want to have. I think you've talked a bit about practical responses. Um, you know what what we can do as as individuals, as groups of people. Um, but anything else you want to say on on the influence that that we may or may not want to have there? We often look to uh, national politics and uh, trying to get our hands on the levers uh, of power. Uh, but the best politics uh, comes, as you've said, uh, from power under. And uh, if you look at Obama, for instance, just as a, an example of a politician, he was a community organiser. Um, and uh, I'm sure if we sort of looked across the gamut of uh, much of the politics of Europe, um, and so on. Many of the most uh, prominent and admired figures started out at the grassroots. Um, and so for us, it's not, you know, can we change the nation? What party will do that for us? There's a degree to which we look at our local uh, district, the, the one that we vote in for our councillors, and say, what can we do in our, our electoral ward? Where we live, there's about seven and a half thousand people uh, live in one of the electoral wards, and then seven and a half in the other. And uh, what, what can we do to help those seven and a half thousand people have a better life in this locality? What are the urgent pressing social needs? Uh, and if we're not willing to engage in helping our locality discover something of the nurturing power, of the kingdom of God and positive uh, flourishing relationships and all of those kind of things, then we don't have any right to step onto a national stage and try and use the implements of power uh, to restrain others. I, I think the other thing that we do have to be very clear about too is this, uh, uh, you know, I've said it a couple of times, this idea of confessional pluralism, whereby you may not like the religious and spiritual and political perspective of a different ethnic group or a different church group or whatever but we allow ourselves to coexist alongside them and do not try and curb their freedom uh, and you know people say to me these people shouldn't be able to worship their gods here this is a christian nation they should go home build their temples somewhere else if somebody said that to us you can't go to some far-flung corner of the world and build a Christian chapel, we would, we would lose it. But we want yeah, to. There's ways. I mean, just, just quickly, sort of harking back to the previous thing. There's obviously ways of of doing that that are more right and just, probably. And there's other ways of doing it at, at the, the the barrel of a gun, which are, are not yeah. the right and just way of doing evangelism in that way well we, we come from a church that coexisted with multiple religions in cities all over the near east and parts of asia uh, and to look beyond that to models where we're in charge and they have to go 
is actually to make the New Testament a lie. Um, and uh, men, much of what we hear out of some Christians' mouths in this area is based around misinterpretations of two or three verses rather than this big sweep of the story of God, the divine drama that at its front has the love of God and his desire for people to be reconciled to one another, to him, and to return uh, to the desire that he has for them to flourish and grow and enjoy the earth and steward it and, and all of those things. So, Fine. So we not, should... not a small ambition, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I know it's something I was been thinking about as we've been preparing for this over the last few days and as been listening to you but and 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 something that William Temple the guy that was the archbishop in 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 um wrote, the, wrote this book in in 1942 um we, we might at, at any given time think I, I like what this party is doing or I like what that party is doing or that guy is good or that guy is you know not so good but we get in real danger if we say that party is Christian yeah. or this, this we, we endorse this whole manifesto, that's a Christian manifesto yeah. um, or, or even worse, that's the Christian manifesto. Um, you know, it, it might be all right for, for an individual Christian to say, well, um, you know, I, I believe in the Labour Party or um, for this reason, I believe, you know, I'm in the Conservative Party. But when it becomes, okay, well, um, I, I think that God is on the side of, um, obviously there's limits to that because there's, there's, you get to a certain point where you're like, well, actually, you know, <laughs> um, that there's certain things that are um, sort of beyond the pale um, yeah. in a certain yeah. sense. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. In the Old um, there was kings like Ahab and so on, and God clearly regarded them as being beyond the pale. Shall we um, just look at that scripture uh, that you... Uh, yeah, I, I just happened to... Um, I just looked at where exactly it's from. It just happened to be in my um, daily Bible reading yesterday, and it's actually 1 Corinthians uh, 3, um, I think, verse 21 um, to 23 three perhaps there uh, yeah um so this is uh, so don't boast about following a particular human leader but everything belongs to you whether paul or apollos or peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future everything belongs to you and you belong to christ and christ belongs to god so uh, i mean i could just repeat the conversation we had yesterday um, but it seems a lot of that came from you. Do you just want to um, uh, share that? Remind me. Well, I think you you were <laughs> you were saying um, obviously that was written about um, oh, yeah, yeah. church, but um, you know, just in reading that, just happened to have read that in the light of of um, what what we. Uh, what we've been thinking about for the last few days and what we're talking about now is, well, you know, he was talking about kind of people that were regarded as leaders of the church and yeah, they yeah. were um, pretty sort of solid people. Yeah. Um, 
and Paul, but Paul was saying, look, don't even boast about following me. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm basically, you know, or oh, he wouldn't have said this, but he was basically the guy of the time. Um, yeah. So if we shouldn't, if, if the, the people in Corinth shouldn't have been boasting about following somebody like him or Apollos or Peter, then we shouldn't get caught up in, well, you know, um, I, I think uh, Boris is the guy or I think Corbyn's the guy or I think Starmer's the guy or I think whoever the Liberal Democrat leader is the guy now. Um, you know, we, we might for certain reasons think, well, I, I think they will be useful for myself or the country or my town, um, but, but we shouldn't get so huge to them um, as being the, the sort of be all and end all of of our our destiny, basically. Man complex, and it's what afflicted the early Israelites because everybody else had a king. They wanted a king. They wanted a strong man who would, uh, you know, defeat the enemy and bring them uh, life and prosperity. And the Bible again and again is pushing people to be. Uh, good communities. God makes all his covenants with the whole people, not just with the king. Um, and uh, their communal living is which that which will restore their life. But all the time they're looking for a strong guy. And a lot of Christians in contemporary life are looking for a strong guy. Um, they again, I think that's they feel like, well, he's going to be our strong guy. Like, yeah. if he's, even yeah. if he's like not not a great person, he's going to do this for us, or he's going to stick up for this, or yeah. or it just. Uh, I mean, this probably just goes beyond Christian, but people just like sort of strong men, strong yeah. strong men leaders at the moment. It seems you know, it's a, it's like almost like a comfort thing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a, a lot of the people that pursue that um, are in churches where there's a strong man who leads. Um, and uh, there's, it's one thing to lead with passion and creativity and so on. But uh, a lot of these situations are authoritarian leadership Um where everybody just salutes the flag and says, he's God's man, so I'm going to follow him, and that's the end of it. And they're not actually being nurtured in themselves to be self-governing and to uh, embrace Christian ethics out of uh, this kind of multifaceted embrace of who God is. Um, and then they transfer that into politics. And so it, it, with all of these things, we have to go back to our roots and say, who were we supposed to be? Uh, we were supposed to be godly communities, individuals within those godly communities, um, and bringing about change through our communities. One of the ways that Paul brought about change was he, he said to Onesimus, whose slave had run away, take him back. And I was thinking, why is Paul saying bring him back into slavery? Well, it's because he might have died otherwise. Destitute, far from home. Who was going to be there back home when he got there? Was there a place for him? It says, take him back and treat him like your brother. And so the Christians gradually obliterated slavery in the early church because they, they kind of grandfathered the existing slaves 
kept them on, let them go, gave them money, set them up, didn't treat them bad, and then didn't buy any more. And yeah. so sometimes yeah. gradualism is the way that we bring about change. Um, great. Probably a subject for another day and maybe uh, that sort of uh, sparks in us maybe we should do a, a kind of in, in I don't know a few weeks or a few months a kind of slavery and empire thing and we can talk about Quakers and we can talk about Martin Luther King and there's a whole bunch of things that we can yeah, talk yeah. about there but let's let's do that another day um, so I, I think um, that probably just leaves us um, or leaves it to me um, to, um, I think it'd be it'd be good for us um, to establish a bit of a pattern and a routine um, in the the um, posing um, of our yep. of our yep. episode with you yep. saying the Lord's but I'll say a few words after that, but they'll just be more administrative. <laughs> right. Do you want me to say it? Uh, say yeah, it? you go for it. Yeah. yeah. I'll do it next time. Good man. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Help us when we might be tempted to wander. As we want to give you all the honour and all the power, and all the glory. Amen. Amen. So, uh, yeah, you've made it this far, um, which uh, approximately 5% of you might have done. Then, uh, um, yeah, do uh, check out stormingwaters.org and, uh, um, and just give us a subscribe and a follow and uh, all, that, all that good stuff. And we will do another episode um, around this time next week and uh, excellent yeah follow us and you can find out what it's about because we haven't decided that completely yep. yet we can promise it'll be thought stirring definitely great